Hello. Uh, good to meet you. And my name's Christian, if we've not met before. And welcome to our uh, final series of the year, uh, as already mentioned, looking at Christmas as seen through the eyes of popular movies. I'm sorry if in any way you thought that you were going to see the full movie today. Sorry to disappoint you and just be a guy talking about a film. Um, though we have got a little clip for you. Um, today's movie is Die Hard, a 1988 American action thriller starring Bruce Willis, uh, a.k.a. Officer John McClane, our hero. He's somewhat uh, a rogue detective with the New York Police Department, and he's flying to Los Angeles on Christmas Eve to attempt a reconciliation with his estranged wife, Holly, who is a top executive at Nakamoti Corporation. Uh, you get a feel for his character by those quotes that are on the screen. 12 terrorists, one cop. The odds are against John McClane. That's just the way he likes it. And then the other one, John McClane only hates one thing more than he hates Christmas, terrorists. <laughs> you can just feel how macho and American he is. Such a great hero. Um, and in the opening scene, on the plane, a fellow passenger turns to him and notices that he's a bit stressed, no doubt, about the meeting with his wife. And so recommends to him this technique that he could do. When he eventually gets to where he's going to, he needs to do, like, barefoot fists with his toes on bare carpet. Take your shoes and socks off and then do this on carpet. And the guy's explaining to him, it's really, really relaxing. It will really, really calm you down. It will really uh, help you get over your jet lag. It turns out... This is really, really bad advice because in the movie, there's a lot of broken glass and explosions and things that you can cut your feet on. A little bit of a spoiler there. McCain's met at the airport by uh, Argyle, the plucky, plucky limousine driver who takes him uh, to where his wife's office is and guides him up to the 30th floor of Nakatomi Plaza building. A brand new building. What could go wrong? There he meets Holly's boss, Joseph Takayagi. Now, don't worry about all these names because quite quickly in this movie, a lot of guns start getting shot and quite a few of these characters disappear fairly early on um, in the movie in various of the many mega shoot-ups. Anyway, while they're up partying on the 30th floor, the baddies arrive, led by the German anarchist Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, who incidentally also stars in the movie that we're looking at next week uh, in this series, in a slightly less terrorist-focused role. Uh, so these terrorists are taking over the building, and they take uh, all the party-goers hostage, and they bid their terms, which is they want the release of a number of terrorists who are currently incarcerated in prison. But the whole thing is actually a ruse to steal $640 million in bonds in the safe in this building. Now, this movie is from 1988, and I kind of feel like $640 million wouldn't really cut it for international terrorists these days. I kind of think like they wouldn't get out of bed for less than a billion, you know, these days, if you were making a movie. So there's a bit of inflation to be added to some of those figures. As I'm sure you can imagine, the local police are hopeless. SWAT don't cut it. The FBI fail, 
and they're actually not even helped by the local media, the sleazy TV reporter Richard Thornburg, who actually makes an appearance in, I think, at least two of the follow-on uh, movies to this. Now, at this point, a lot of people start dying. And John McClane single-handedly has to fight all the terrorists, save the hostages, recover the money, and rescue his wife. And he's not even wearing his shoes because of the stupid advice the man on the plane has given him. There follows a lot of helicopters jumping out of windows, stuff getting blown up, guns getting shot, and corny one-liners like nine million terrorists in the world, and I got to kill one with feet smaller than my sister. Oh, here's another one. Now I know how a TV dinner feels. Can't quite remember where that comes from, but <laughs> there are many classic cracking one-liners in this movie. Now, I won't spoil the end of uh, this if you haven't watched uh, what Empire Magazine calls one of the best action Christmas films ever made. Now, Empire Magazine can't be wrong. It's clearly a Christmas movie. Sufficient to say that our hero single-handedly saves everyone with only a few machine guns, eight hand grenades, some high explosive, and a bit of bad language. A real hero, you might think. Classic Christmas story. Maybe. We'll get into that in a minute. And this is like a blockbuster film that everyone in the world has watched, apart from Dan Finn. I think Dan Finn may be the only person that's not watched it. You haven't watched it either. I have a copy, and I can, if you feel, if you feel like I've really sold it to you just now, I've got a DVD copy, if you still do DVDs, and I could lend it to you, and you can become part of the Die Hard Club. Anyway, um, just to whet your appetite before we move on, let's watch a little short clip from Die Hard. Who are you, then? Just the fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. The pain in the ass. Whoa. Check on all the others. Don't use the radio. See if he's lying about Marco and find out if anyone else is missing. Mr. Mystery Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. Uh, no, I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? There you go, suitably beeped out for the inappropriate, inappropriate words that we heard. I wonder how you feel about guns and bombs and fighting being presented to us as part of the Christmas story. As we kick off this series, Christmas at the Movies, and we unpack some of the popular Christmas stories as portrayed to us through the cinema... We could maybe think about the beginning of that short clip where the baddie asks the question of the hero, who are you? And of course, there are some similarities between the hero John McClane and the hero Jesus of the Christmas story. 
Uh, both came to bring a kind of redemption uh, in place of estrangement and rejection. Both came to set captives free, to release prisoners, to set people free from darkness, to defeat or overcome evil. And although that's probably where the similarities, vague as they are, end, there is something of a perpetual dilemma between the type of hero that all of us crave. Perhaps there is always a competition between the type of hero we're looking for. Many thousands of years ago, the people of Israel were also looking for a hero to save them. And most of Israel were actually looking for some kind of military or warrior king to rescue them from their captivity and to bring them into freedom and to use power and force to do that. Maybe they were hoping a little bit for a John McClane type savior who would use some guns and some muscle and set them literally three. And the savior they got instead offered sacrifice, submission, servanthood. And such was the contrast that actually many Jews of the time failed to recognize that Jesus was the savior that was being sent to them because he probably just didn't match up to their interpretation or their expectation of what the prophecies from Isaiah 9 that we've already heard and the Old Testament and just their sense of this is what I think a savior might be like. Israel wanted to put their hope in a fighting hero, not a humble savior. They were desiring security through power rather than salvation through sacrifice. And so they endured their hopelessness due to their darkness in captivity, as many people still do today. Nothing has changed. People are still looking to be set free spiritually and practically today, even as we've heard already in the meeting. And they probably never expected that their long-desired hope would arrive in the form of a crying and helpless baby in a dirty manger. And perhaps the same is true for us today in our expectations. What are we hoping for? And how do we imagine God might change our world? So in this first week of Christmas at the Moomies, we're looking at the start of the Christmas story from centuries-old prophetic rumblings from the prophet Isaiah. And they begin to be fulfilled in that second story we heard of the angel visiting Mary in Luke chapter 1. And as we do this, it's almost as if we're considering an upside-down version of good news, something that remains piercingly relevant for us today as it did 2,000 years ago as this story unfolded. And we only need to look at uh, the global issues of climate change or refugee crisis of the economy or of global poverty and consider how in the wake of these often we, we crave um, those that are maybe even despotic or populist in leaders to be our heroes that will lead us into freedom. And so Jesus remains a, an unlikely saviour, as he was described in the Isaiah reading, Emmanuel, God close to us, God with us. Someone who brings hope as a kind of inside job, offering personal sacrifice to bring us rescue and healing. As we heard the reading in, in Isaiah's 
words, and I was thinking about them this week, um, three, three ideas popped out to me as I was thinking about the description Isaiah makes about the Savior who would be Jesus. And the first was in verse 2. It describes a people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. And so whoever this hero is that God sends, they will be good news to those who are struggling. And darkness comes in all sorts of forms. It could be depression or sickness or isolation or any time that we lack hope, then we're in darkness. And so if Christmas isn't good news for somebody who's struggling, for someone who feels they're in darkness, then probably we're not doing the right form of Christmas. Verse 4 says this, This Savior will shatter the yokes that burden people. So Christmas is always also about the liberation, the setting free, the breaking things that bind people so they can experience freedom in Jesus. And it's the kind of story we can get caught up in. It's so easy, I find, to get distracted by uh, food and the people we know the best and some time off maybe to watch television or to do other things and to just think about those people and not be aware of those around us who maybe need help. But all of us can do something. The second thing I noticed, verse 3, it says, This Savior will increase joy. A few weeks ago, we had the baptism service, and there was a, uh, a visitor, a church leader from one of the other uh, Anglican churches in the city who was here. And I met up with her this week, and I said, what did you think of the service? And she said, I felt it was absolutely full of joy. And that was like her summary. And she kind of didn't really have anything else to say. She just said, everything about it from beginning to end felt full of joy. And it felt like people had joy. And it felt like the things you were talking about were full of joy. And I feel like I saw the same thing. Some of you have heard me report on this. I was recently in Tanzania seeing uh, children and local communities, many of whom are, are in the lowest forms of poverty that you might see. E extreme poverty. Poverty that will, will, could end or shorten your life. And in the midst of that, particularly in children, I noticed how joyful they were not heads down, stuck in some kind of screen device. And I noticed when I got back to England, uh, a lot of people just don't smile, don't look like they've got an open, lit-up face. And yet, in Tanzania, in some of the hardest-hit, least-resourced places, people had joy. And I knew from talking to some of my guides that were there, it's because they really love worshipping Jesus, and it brings joy to their life. And our world needs joy. We've got a savior who wants to just turn up the volume on joy so that people can experience more of it themselves. And the third thing I noticed was this in verse 7. It says, the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Long after the Christmas toys have broken, and long after the current swathe of politicians have left office, there will still be a Jesus. From the beginning of our lives to the end, there's Jesus. Jesus is for life, not just for Christmas. <laughs> and he's not just for our life. He's for all of the lives. He's, he's from the very beginning to the very end. 
And the increase of his government and peace will not run out or end. And so this is something we can experience. All of us can draw closer than we have been before to Jesus. Maybe first steps, or we've taken many steps this Christmas because Jesus is not running out. He's got more for us to experience, and he's got more for other people to find out as well. So I wonder what kind of hero the true Christmas story highlights for you. Certainly not dodgy politicians whose conversations sometimes feel like they're going to war and fighting with everyone, John McLean style, or terrorists who want to use guns and violence and fear and the opposite of joy to promote their ideas and the things that they want, or those that supply fake news, not news of justice and truth and righteousness, but just things that are not true or a version of truth to persuade us to do something that they want us to do, or any of the other fake alternative options of the true hero and savior that's presented to us in Jesus at Christmas. And as we already heard in the reading from Luke, the original Christmas story is told so well in the beginning of Luke, the evangelist's book, Luke's Gospel. And in chapter 1, we had it read to us, uh, Luke gives the account of Gabriel appearing to Mary. And uh, you've seen that scene so many times, every nativity you've been to, you know, the angel. I was once that angel with tinfoil wings and a dressing gown and whatever else it was. And we don't know much about Mary as a candidate to be a hero, except that she's obviously an unlikely choice. There are not many great things that can be said about her in the passage, except that she was willing to be used by God. She hadn't gone to a great school. She didn't come from a great family. She's not described as having brilliant prospects. She wasn't born in an important place. None of the traditional markers that would have said, here's a potential hero, are there. Her marker is just, she's willing to be used by God. She's an unlikely choice. And then the angel appears to her, um, and uh, he says to her, greetings, and you are highly favored, and the Lord is with you. And let me read that bit um, that the angel says to her after that. He says to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will give birth to a son, and you just call him Jesus, and he will be great, and he'll be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and ever, and his kingdom will never end. The angel prophesied to her the fulfillment of the hero story predicted thousands of years earlier by Isaiah. And Mary is a hero for being obedient to God. And Jesus is the one that God's promised who will become the hero and the saviour to all people. And so you know the story, you heard it read. Mary's now pregnant with Jesus. She visits her older cousin, Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And Elizabeth praises Mary for her faith. And then Mary responds with some words that have become, come to have been known as the Magnificat. And the section of words that she responds as Elizabeth spoken to her is called the Magnificat. You may have heard them before. 
They're actually one of the eight most ancient Christmas songs and Christian songs. Um, and, and those words are used in the daily prayers of the majority of all Christian denominations. They are like a treasured cornerstone of describing what it's like to experience and encounter Jesus. And the Magnificat is particularly used in worship services, as we heard earlier, uh, during the period of Advent, the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And in the Magnificat, through beautiful words, we are described to us a hero servant responding to God's work through Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to finish by looking at those words. And we've printed them out on little slips there on your um, table. And you'll also hear the words um, playing in the background. But focus on your tables and the conversations that you can have there. And as you look at the words, and you might feel drawn to a particular bit, you might want to talk about it, it'd be good to, to unpack with those that are on your table your thoughts about what this is as a, as a message describing a hero's response to following God, and how the gospel kind of brings to us the, the upside-down version of good news, not an action hero of power and vengeance, but a savior who brings humility and mercy. So over to you at your tables. <laughs> 